coming to the end of Mark's gospel. We just read the end of the gospel, and Mark does not disappoint. Uh, Think with me, though, for a moment about how some of the other gospels end. Matthew ends with this inspiring great commission. Luke's gospel ends with with the, the triumphant ascension of Jesus into heaven. John's gospel ends with the restoration of Peter and and these comforting words, these hopeful words that if they had to record all that Jesus had said and done, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to fill the contents. And of course, those words that he says that I wrote so that you believing in Jesus and in believing might have life everlasting. Mark's gospel ending by contrast is a little bit like walking into a pole because you were distracted by talking to a friend of yours. Anyone ever done that? You know, having a conversation, you don't know there's a street pant, boom, it's just abrupt and ending, right? It just ends just like that at verse 8. Now, we'll get into verse 9 and 20. Don't worry, if you're looking at that and you see that unusual note, we'll talk about that. But this ending of Mark's gospel is unusual, isn't it? Not only do we have these contrasts with the other gospels, but notice in these 16 verses that we read this morning, it is just full of contrast, isn't it? For one thing, we see the contrast of the courage of Joseph in contrast to the fear of these female disciples. We see a religious leader who's looking good for a change in contrast to these women who are looking bad for a change in the gospel. We have a resurrection account with no apparent resurrection appearance and a gospel that may or may not have 12 extra verses, right? This will probably explain to you why no preacher uses Mark's gospel on Easter Sunday morning, right? It just doesn't happen. Now, this morning, I have two aims. Number one, to unpack for you Mark's final point on discipleship, and number two, to explain to you the mystery and beauty of God's Word in human words, or in other words, put it more plainly, what is the deal with this, 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 this note here about verses 9 through 20? My first aim is to encourage you towards faithfulness in the work of God. My second aim is to impart to you confidence in the Word of God. So, in some sense, this morning, it's going to be like getting a little like two sermons because I want to address two very different things. Uh, Don't panic for those of you. It's not going to be twice as long. So, I'm going to give you a two-for-one this morning. We're going to deal with Mark's point on discipleship, and then we're going to deal with this point we have about these verses 9 through 20. So, we have a lot to cover, and and it's going to be very encouraging, so let's get to it. Number one, I want to talk about uh, Mark's point in encouraging us to be faithful, faithfulness in the work of God. Now, you might be thinking, especially if you've been a Christian for a while and you're kind of anticipating what's coming up, it's the resurrection, that our main focus would be on the resurrection. Now, if that's what you were thinking, you would be wrong simply because that isn't Mark's main focus in what we're looking at this morning. Now, now to be clear, to be clear, it's very obvious what has taken place that Jesus has, in fact, risen from the dead. Look at verse 6 in particular of chapter 16. It is a ma- it's one of those amazing verses that is so easy to read past and not realize the profound, reality-altering truths we are reading right there. Chapter 16, verse 6, the angel says to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. You see, verse 6 is the place where time and history meets eternity and mystery. (laughs) 
This, this is where, I mean, a new order of existence has come into play, and nobody has categories for it. And again, I've said over and over again, one of the disadvantages we have, we don't think it's a disadvantage, but it is, is that we're often too familiar with the story. Well, of course, resurrection. Jesus, of course, Jesus rose from the dead. Not of course. This is the most profoundly mind-altering, unexpected thing. It was just as hard for them to realize that Jesus would rise from the dead as it is in our modern mind. Did it, did it occur to you when you read this text, as Randy read it to you, nobody's prepared for a resurrection, right? Not a single disciple, um, all the times Jesus was talking to them about, I will be killed and I'll rise again on the third day and I'll meet you in Galilee. Time after time after time, Jesus mentions that. Is there any single disciple of those 12 who thought, you know, remember he said all that? Maybe just in case, let's, just, just for kicks, let's go and see what happens. Not a single one of them. Do you notice the ladies going with spices to anoint his body because he's dead? They're not prepared for a resurrection. They weren't expecting it. They were going because of love for their, love for their master to continue to prepare his body. Because Shabbat was there, they couldn't do a proper uh, Jewish funeral rite, so they showed up after the Sabbath to perform that, but they weren't expecting a resurrection. Mark is very clear to let us know. This is as astounding to them as it is to the modern mind. The angel says, he was crucified. He has risen. It's at this moment, friends, at that, this very moment that these women are witnessing what Jesus said would come to pass in Mark 9, 1, the kingdom of God come with power, and they are seeing it right now. And, and this, this narrative of this visit to the tomb is so much Mark's style. As, as I've been spending time in it, I'm sure you've been reading it. This is classic Mark's irony that, that the living are consumed with the crucified one, but the crucified one is consumed with life. In fact, he, he, Jesus is already on the move, right? It's not like they walk into the tomb and there's Jesus, ta-da, he's not even there. Jesus is already on the move, just like the entire gospel of Mark. Jesus is going, 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 doing, doing, doing. Verse 7, the angel says to them, he's already, go tell disciples, go tell Peter, he's going to meet you in Galilee. Come on already, let's get this thing going. We got work to do. Jesus is not going to wait around hanging out in the tomb to impress you. He's not even here. I, I, I'm just letting you know what's going on. Catch up, because he's told you already. And that's it. That's really all we get of the resurrection in Mark's gospel. Now, this does not mean that the historical reality of this event is not important to Mark. Mark goes through great pains to be very clear that what has happened at the resurrection is an event of history and time, one that will change the course of history. Did you notice, very uncharacteristic for Mark, that he names no less than six individuals in this passage. He talks about the two Marys, Salome, Joseph, Pilate, and the centurion that was on duty. And any one of them being associated with the potential escapee of a convicted criminal executed by Rome would have brought dire consequences. So unless this is true, the record would not have stood. In other words... Anyone at the time who received this gospel could have tracked down any one of these six individuals 
and interrogate them to the, to the historicity of this event. And if you know anything about Rome, you do not mess around with their prisoners. You do not help any of them escape. And if any of them had anything to do with it, their necks were on the line. And so if they had nothing to do with this, there's no way we would have had the accounting of six names in the record. So Mark was very clear to say there were eyewitnesses to this situation. And by the way, at Mark's time, by the time Mark wrote this gospel, I believe we're talking late 50s, possibly early 60s AD, stories were already fabricated about what happened to Jesus. Now, if you're a note taker, write down Matthew chapter 28, verse 13 to 15, because right there, one of the stories were being created because they couldn't explain what happened in the resurrection. The chief priests and the leaders paid off the Roman centurions and said, okay, this is the line. This is what you tell them that the disciples came and stole the body, and we will cover your backs. Take this money. Don't say anything to anyone. And some of those stories carry on to this day. I remember as far as late as the 1990s, I actually, I don't keep up with, too, with everything on these things. So I don't know if it, others are still circulating, but in the 90s, we had what was called the swoon theory, right? This was a big, big time when we also had the Jesus seminar and a lot of liberal scholarship talking about the historical Jesus. The swoon theory was basically this, and this is, you can't make this stuff up, that Jesus kind of swooned on the cross. I don't mean to mock it, but when you understand what crucifixion is, you see how crazy this is, even to suggest this, but the swoon theory is as it sounds, Jesus on the cross swooned, passed out because of the pain and his, and his agony, and when they put him in the cool of the tomb, that freshness revived him, and he got up and rolled the stone away from the tomb and escaped, right? To say nothing about being, I mean, literally crucified hours earlier and then whipped like crazy, than to move a, a several hundred pound stone out of the way and run away into the night. But that's a theory that circulated. And you can see in Mark's writing, he's trying to discount any possible theories, maybe even that one, because did you notice at what pains Mark goes to to talk about how Jesus actually was dead, as in dead, dead, no swoon theory? Look in chapter 15, verse 40. The woman, the woman, they saw Jesus die. Pilate and the centurion, both very familiar with death, in verse 44, testified to Jesus being dead. And then in verse 45, Mark is so profane to call Jesus, he just calls it the corpse. So Mark is making it very clear. There, there's no passing out on the cross, and he got up in the tomb and ran away. Everyone knew he was dead. Others by contrast, believe that the women went to the wrong tomb. And they actually went to a tomb that was never used or occupied, and so Jesus is somewhere out there still in a tomb. But Mark is also clear to dispel that idea, because these same women that saw Jesus die in verse 40, they also followed and saw where he was laid in verse 47. So they knew exactly which tomb to go to that morning, according to chapter 16 and verse 2. Mark is even careful to say, the sun was up. So there could be no misunderstanding that in the dark somehow these women stumbled upon the wrong tomb and thought it was the tomb of Jesus because the sun was already up. So Mark's being very careful to show what is taking place is actually what is taking place. These women went to the tomb where the crucified Jesus had been laid, and now he is no longer there. 
So if this resurrection passage is not about the resurrection, then what is it about? And by the way, um, Mark was the first gospel written, which is probably why the other gospel writers really expound on the historical event of the resurrection, because Mark has very little to say about it, because that's not his focus. So the question then becomes, well, then what is his focus as he wraps up this gospel? Mark is completely consistent. His focus here doesn't switch all of a sudden to the resurrection, but it's about discipleship. Notice with me by now, if you've been pretty consistent in our series, this is familiar to you. Mark has been using a literary device, right, where he starts about one topic and then abruptly just shoves in, sandwiches in another topic, and then picks up abruptly the first topic he began with, and the thing he shoves in the middle is supposed to help us interpret the events on either end. We talked about it, and I called it a Markin sandwich because I have no other thing to call it, right? So Mark sandwiches them something in to help us understand what's going on. We see the same thing going on here. Notice in verse 40 and 41 of chapter 15, it is talking about these women, these disciples who follow Jesus at a distance, right? And then in verse 42, it abruptly switches to this narrative of Joseph of Arimathea. And then just as abruptly again in verse 47, it switches back to these women. So here we have again, we've seen this about five times in the Gospel of Mark, uh, one of these Markian sandwiches where he's trying to help us understand what's going on. Notice what he's framing here. What do we have on the two outer halves, verse 40 and then 16, verse 8? We have those who are his disciples who are at a distance watching events unfold, but they're not involved. And then they're running away in fear and terror, not saying anything, disobeying the command to tell everyone what's happening. What's taking place in the middle? Okay, remember, that's how you interpret these things. What's taking place in the middle? We have a here-to-known, unknown disciple by the name of Joseph. We know he's a disciple because every gospel that refers to Joseph says he was looking for the kingdom. And this disciple taking courage and asking for Jesus himself. And this is no small action that this Joseph of Arimathea is doing. Number one... Remember what I said earlier about his showing affection and care for convicted enemies of the state of Rome or of the empire of Rome. So that surely would have put him in disrepute or, and at the very least, if his body was missing and he's the guy that asked for the body, guess who's suspect number one? So that's Joseph. So this is no small thing he's asking from Rome, but also he risks being an outcast from his peer group and his social setting. If you're a note-taker, write down Luke chapter uh, 23, verse 50, okay? Just write that down. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But notice back in Mark 15, what does verse 43 say about Joseph? He was a respected member of the council. What council is he referring to? The council we've been looking at for the last couple chapters. Joseph of Arimathea was a respected member of the Sanhedrin. And Luke 23, 50, Luke is careful to record that Joseph disagreed entirely with the way the Sanhedrin were dealing with Jesus. He was completely against dealing with Jesus that way. But here he is, risking the wrath of Rome, risking being an outcast from his social peers, from his career peers, 
so that he can do the right thing. Maybe, maybe Joseph watching all these events unfold, maybe it was too much, and maybe he, like many of the leaders that John uh, 12, 42 mentioned to us, where it says, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue. Maybe Joseph realized the time for fearing man was past, and it's time now to act. And so Mark is careful to say in Mark 15, 43, that Joseph took courage, and he asked for Jesus himself. Now, for Mark, the resurrection is key, right? It is key but it is not the climax of what's going on in his gospel. The resurrection is the proof and vindication that all that Jesus said and did is in fact true, and therefore he's worthy of our affection and our obedience. He's worthy of our very lives. And in the same way, however, in the same way that a wedding is not the marriage but is the celebratory event that inaugurates the thing of marriage. The resurrection itself is not the goal of the Christian, but the celebratory event of the thing it inaugurates, which is a life of following the master. And so for Mark, it is not the central focus of attention, but one last mention of what discipleship is. And this last lesson that Mark is framing here is that faithful discipleship is not merely being at a distance, contemplating, loving Jesus, feeling like you want to be a disciple, but actually acting courageously on his behalf and not being on the sidelines. I think that's a really important message, especially for our day and age, where it's easy to be a disciple and be on the sidelines and watch the action unfold from a distance, but not really be involved, not, not, not have skin in the game, so to speak, to let other people do the heavy lifting. You don't want to inconvenience your life. You don't want to be seen as a Jesus freak. You've got too much to lose. Mark says, um, that's not how this works. Let me give you one last picture of discipleship, and there's a man who had everything to lose, his life, his career, his reputation, his friendships, everything, but he took courage, and he, and he associated himself with Jesus. Following Jesus is courage, not fear. It's action, not silence. Even Jesus' own disciples faltered and failed, but here we have a man who did not. But here's an important qualifier, and why the abrupt ending is so important. Because we don't want to walk away thinking, okay, that's what discipleship is. It's, it's action and courage. It's doing something. Then I pull myself up by the moral bootstraps and get the job done. That's not the message we walk away with. This is why this abrupt ending is so important. Let's, let's read it. Chapter 16, verse 8. And they, speaking of the women, went out and fled from the tomb. Why? For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Friends, discipleship is action. It is courage. But, this is important, the success of the mission is not dependent upon those things alone. 
Because if we just hear, okay, discipleship is action and courage, now that's us. we got to get after this and make it. It depends on us. That is not what it depends on. Mark's abrupt and failed ending reminds us that the successful completion of this story is not dependent upon human performance, but the continued power of God. Because after all, friends, if this were the end right here, chapter 16, verse 8, and they didn't do anything about it, then why are we here talking about it 2,000 years later on the other side of the globe, right? So Mark is ending this, this, this aspect that the disciples of Jesus are called to action, they're called to courage, not fear, not silence, to get into the game, not stand on the sidelines. But at the end of the day, God's kingdom does not depend on our action and our courage it's going to be depending upon God's kingdom come with power and often in ways we would not expect at all. And there's this dual reality. In fact, in fact, this is a, a great segue into my second point this morning, that the spread of the gospel is a combination of disciples of Christ taking their discipleship seriously, but all the time relying and recognizing that the success of this endeavor is going to be on God and God Himself, which is very much like how we have our Bibles. And so before we leave point one, that, that, that's the idea is that, man, being a disciple means I've got to be faithful, and not just in how I feel about Christ, but how I'm going to live for Christ. I'm going to leave that to yourself about processing what that's going to look like in your life. Because every one of us in this room struggles with fear and silence and standing up and being associated with Jesus. So you're going to have to work out what does that mean to be faithful in the work of God? How am I fearing man more than God and compromising him, right? Let's move on to the second one I want to give you now. Confidence in the Word of God. We want to be faithful in the work of God, but we also have to have confidence in the Word of God. And some of you may be seeing this note here. Look, I'll take a look at it in your Bibles. I think most Bibles say this, and it's a little kind of in brackets. It says, some of the earliest man manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Now, you might know uh, people, this might even be you, but you read this and you start to panic. Oh, man, what does that mean? What do you mean some of these manuscripts don't include these verses? Do we not have God's Word given to us? Was the Da Vinci Code right? And how can we know that this is actually God's Word? Is something being kept back from us? What's going on? Right? So, number one, breathe easy, okay? There's nothing nefarious or wicked happening. The Vatican's not hatching some scheme behind your backs without you knowing it. Actually, the reality is it's much more boring than all of that. And, and, and the reason I want to talk about this, probably when I started ministry about 20 years ago, and, and actually I, I may have been even told this in preaching class, you don't ever preach about stuff like this because no one cares, right? Which is why I rarely quote you Greek words. Nobody cares that I know Greek. And, and if my um, homiletics professor knew I was actually going to talk about textual criticism at a sermon, he would be rolling in his grave. Because uh, I get it. This is not the thing you're thinking about. So why am I talking about it? 20 years ago... There was a lot of assumptions we could make in our society. Even non-Christians might read that and ignore it, give you a pass, then whatever. But we live in an increasingly post-Christian culture, and as Christians, we can't make, we can't benefit or live off assumptions. We have to know. Because if somebody asks you, maybe even yourself, maybe you're not sure why that's there, and maybe you're a little bit nervous why that's there, and you'd rather not even think about it. Friends, that's not the kind of faith God wants of you. 
He wants a reasoned, thought-out faith because this world needs a reasoned faith that they can bank their lives on, right? So things have changed in 20 years, which is why I think this is actually important to talk about. You don't need to know everything I'm going to tell you now, but you at least need to have categories to think about this and know where to go when people ask you these questions. And secondly, when we do expositional preaching, this is what we deal with. Whether I want to deal with the text or not, if it's there, we got to deal with it. So we're going to deal with it. Where am I in my notes? There we go. Okay. Uh, So let me make two points. Number one, as you know, the Bible is unlike any book in the history of humanity in that it is a perfect revelation from God to man. On the other hand, the Bible is like any book in the history of humanity in that it's translated and transmitted and distributed and copied and recopied and retranslated and redistributed. Now, we're going to unpack the dynamics there, but if you don't understand that the Bible is simultaneously both of these things, you're going to make one of two errors. Either you might be tempted to think that the Bible is this completely mystical writing that is directly given from heaven to Amazon.com. So, so when you ordered it, it was sitting on a shelf in heaven a week ago until it got sent to Amazon and then came to your doorstep, right? On the other hand, if you don't understand these dynamics, you will begin to think that, well, the Bible was written by men and it's been translated into all these languages through all this time. How many of you have heard an argument similar to that? So how can it actually be perfect and reliable? I mean, yeah, it's a good religious book, but come on, it's totally flawed. Now, both of those are kind of extreme ends. Many people are somewhere in between. Yeah, it's kind of unique, but not, because it's God's stuff, but it's also touched by man's hands and man's imperfect, so yeah, we can't really trust it. So let me put it to you this way. The message is perfect because it is a revelation of God's Word to man. The medium, however, is not, because it's God's Word in human words. Let me illustrate this to you for a second. Let me illustrate this. Okay, I've got a message here. If, like, somebody wealthy or some, like, I forget who does lotteries anymore, but, you know, if somebody came out and says, hey, and gave you this message, would you be happy? And they had the money to back it up. Yeah, you would be. Is the message clear? Absolutely. What's the message? You're rich, right? You're rich. Now, what if it came this way? Oh, no, no, that's totally different. No, no, now I'm not rich because that's not the same message. Is it the same message? Yep. What if it came this way? This was a millennial who grew up text messaging, okay? So this is what you got. You have one, a million big ones. Are you still rich? And I know I'm upset a whole generation of people in this audience. Sorry. Okay. So, <laughs> what's the message, friends? All three messages, are they the same? Yes. The message is identical, but the medium, some's a little better, some's a little worse, isn't it? This is what I mean. The message of God's Word is perfectly given to us Because God is flawless, but because God in His mercy condescends to work through human agency, the mediums will be less than perfect. 
Friends, what we're talking about here, and I put a couple books in our book spot just in case anyone's interested. It's in the center. It's called From God to Us, How We Got Our Bible. What we're talking about here are the three major categorizations of inspiration, uh, uh, canonization, and transmission. Inspiration is the perfect reality that God gave his revelation to humanity of his plan. He gave it to his prophets and it was perfectly in its reception to them. It was inspired by him. Canonization is the process by which the people of God through time recognized what are those inspired documents and collected them together because we had to pass it on. Transmission is the process of uh, copying and translating and distributing and recopying and retranslating and redistributing those documents. The inspiration was 100% perfect because it was God giving his message and he gave it to us as he intended. But the canonization and transmission, they're necessarily a little bit wonky because we are a part of that process. Let me illustrate this point. So, what I need to tell you is that right now, let me say something that's going to be shocking and unpack it to you. We do not have a single one of the original actual writings of the New Testament. That's the technical term for that. It's called autograph. Okay. We think celebrities, but it actually means autograph means the original first writing. So we don't have a single letter that Paul wrote or John or Peter or Mark for that, for that, for that purpose, right? Now, some people may be sitting there going, or you might know some friends will say, ah, see, that's why you can't believe the Bible. You don't even have the original autographs. But friends, by that standard, you cannot believe a single document from antiquity at all because we don't have a single autograph of any document from history. All we have are what's called manuscripts. Manuscripts are the copied uh, works from the original. I want to illustrate this to you. So I'm going to put up on the slide, on the screens here, uh, documents from antiquity that no scholar, no university, nobody who wants to be considered at all credible in professional or academic circles disputes the authenticity and historical value of. So let me show you how I'm setting this up. On the left column, uh, there's the writing or the actual historical document. In this case, the first one we're looking at is the Roman history of Livy. And he wrote, was alive between 59 BC and 17 AD. The next column to the right says oldest MS, that means manuscript. That means the, the, the oldest copy we have of, of Livy's Roman histories that goes to the fourth century, okay? Number of MS, number of manuscripts. We have 27 copies of his histories. Time gap, that's telling you from when Livy wrote to the earliest copy we have in the fourth century, it's about three to 400 years have elapsed. Does that make sense? So, Livy's histories, which no one disputes, if you went to college, maybe you read some of this in a textbook, we have 27 copies of it, and it was about three to 400 years between when he wrote and the one we have. Here's another one. Tacitus, another Roman historian, uh, 56 to 120 AD, the oldest copy we have is uh, the ninth century, and we only have three, and the distance between when Tacitus wrote and the oldest copy we have is eight centuries, okay? Here's Suetonius, uh, maybe in college you might have read, he's one of the more well-knowns, he read the 12, who wrote the 12 Caesars. So he wrote about 69 to 140 AD, the oldest copy we have is the 9th century. We have over 200 of Suetonius, so that's pretty good, but that's still a time gap between 7 to 8 centuries. 
Okay, nobody disputes Suetonius. Thucydides, he's a Greek, uh, another writer, 460 to 400 BC. The oldest copy we have is the first century. We only have 20 of those. It's been about four centuries between when he wrote to the earliest copy we have. Here's Herodotus, same kind of thing. Four, uh, 48, oh, sorry, not 4,000. I, I got an extra number four. Ah, manuscript evidence. Okay, don't listen to anything Pastor Rick says. Okay, here's a perfect example, right? So I hit the four key, that darn Apple keyboard thing. All right, so 484 to 425 BC, oldest manuscript, first century. We got about 75. The time gap's about four and a half centuries. Okay, now I'm going to show you something about the New Testament. And this isn't Christian. I didn't get this from a Christian professor. This is indisputed fact of scroll scholars, whether you're at the University of Missouri, uh, Museum of Dublin, uh, British Museum of, uh, in London. Uh, Huntington Library actually has some of these. I think at least they used to. Uh, uh, Michigan's Antiquity Collection. Okay, so these are all over the world. Here's the evidence for the New Testament. 5,700. That's just in the original Greek language. If we include the other languages, Latin, Coptic, Syriac, we have about 10,000 more. If we include all the quotations from the patristic period, early church fathers, we have a million quotations. We can reconstruct the entire New Testament simply by recording the quotations of the New Testament in ancient letters back and forth. This is astounding. If, you're good, if you have anyone who believes any of those other documents of antiquity and they have any problem with the Bible, they don't know the facts. This is astounding, friends. This is embarrassingly astounding when people argue that the Bible, you cannot trust it. Because the same methods of textual reconstruction applied to the New Testament, how we get our Bibles and translated, are the same methods applied to all documents of antiquity. And look at the numbers we're dealing with. This is astounding. So the question has to be, and, and guys, th there are whole classes we could do on this. I'm just trying to give you a sense of why we can trust the Bible and be honest with the re realistic dynamics that there are some manuscript differences. So the question then becomes, so what's this note here in Mark 16 about not all manuscripts share that? Well, what does that have to do with that? Now, the reality is not all manuscripts are the same. In fact, there are whole families of manuscripts. We have the Western, the Alexandrian, the Byzantine, the, um, I'm going to say this carefully because it sounds like um, Caesarean, Caesarean, Caesarean family of manuscripts. And in those, you have papyrus, unseals, lectionaries, minuscules. You have all these classifications. And they're not all the same, okay? And of all these manuscripts, there are thousands of variations in the New Testament, thousands. But 90% of them are of the sort I put on the screen earlier. Instead of writing out one million, they just decide to use the number one million. So 90% of them, there's no question at all about what's being written. Another 8.5% are the kinds of changes that, that are a little bit more significant, like instead of using a formal name, they use a pronoun. Instead of saying Jesus, they say he. Or instead of saying she, they'll say Mary, okay? We account for that and say, okay, that is a variation. So we're going to be honest and say that's, a, that's more significant. That's about 8.5%, okay? And some of them are just obvious misspelled writings. And my favorite, sorry about this, I'm just going to nerd out here for a second. My favorite is from 2 Thessalonians 2.7. Okay, so there is a bunch of manuscripts out there that if you're familiar with Paul's writing to Thessalonians, that, 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 that he says, we were horses among you. 
Okay, so if you're familiar with what Paul actually says in Second Thessalonians, or First Thessalonians 2.7, he says, we were gentle among you. But there's many manuscripts that say we were horses among you, okay? What, what, what is going on? Guys, just think about what's happening here. We grew up in the day of the, the printing press and Amazon and all that. They didn't have any of that stuff. So how were you going to get a scroll, a book? They didn't even have books, all right? They didn't have books. They had scrolls. How were you going to get a scroll when this faith is blowing up all over the world and they need copies of this? What do you do? You're going to copy it, right? And so rather than just one person copying one, what would typically happen is a bunch of scribes, this is what monks did, they would get together and one would sit in the center and read the text and everyone would be sitting around furiously writing it down. And can you imagine you're like 16 because, you know, you have a, you're, you're a man at 16 and you're up at 2 a.m. in candlelight and you've been doing this for 12 hours and you're now in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and you're going. And he says to you, but we were nipoi and you just heard hippoi and you wrote down hippoi because in Greek, horse is hippoi and gentle is nipoi. But when you've been working for 12 hours and it's 2 a.m. and you've got to get some sleep and you just heard the bishop say, nipoi or hippoi, you're like, well, okay. So we were horses among you. All right, this is done. Get it out there. And so imagine what's happening in Turkey. They get the letter. All right, we have the, we have the second Thessalonians and we were horses among you. Well, it's inspired by the apostle of God. So that's what they were. There were horses amongst us. Okay, and now we got churches in that area. So copy this out. And so late, years later, some, some Christians in, in, in uh, um, the Balkans come across, they go into Turkey, hey, so I'm going to read, and Paul was not a horse, um, what in the world, a horse among you? Well, yeah, because we got this from the, these, let me, let me say, who's the scribe that gave you this? Ah, uh, it was Joey. That guy, man. <laughs> everything Joey's got. Everyone thinks we're horses among you. And so they recognize that that's what had happened. But, but the point is, okay, are we going to say, all right, clearly, clearly, we can't believe the Bible because a scribe furiously copying it out because the gospel was spreading, heard Nippoi and said Nippoi and wrote that down. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about errors. And it's clear because everyone else got the right translation. So when we find 10 manuscripts that said we're horses among you, we're not going to buy that. It's pretty clear Paul said we were gentle among you. And see, that's, what, that, that's the nature of these mistakes. That's about 8.5%, and, and that, even that misspelling is even less. Another 1% are changes that can change the actual meaning of the text, but they have no impact on key doctrines. Like, Rome, I'm running out of time, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, when Paul talks about us being justified now with God, we have peace. It's a difference of one letter that says, we've been justified with God, let us have peace, okay? That's what we mean by a significant change. One is, is an indicative fact that we have now peace with God because we're justified in Christ. The other is saying, we need to kind of enter into the experience of that peace. You might think, well, what's the big deal? And that's true, but we're just trying to be honest with the changes in the text, and there's a change. And that's 1%. And finally, we have this, what we call the long ending in Mark's gospel, chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. And again, the only other one like this is John chapter 7, verse 53, to John chapter 8, verse 11, the woman caught in adultery. What this editorial note is saying here in Mark 16, and you see it in John 7 as well, is that they're saying the oldest manuscripts we now have, so oldest meaning closest to the original writing, does not include these verses. 
So because they are the older manuscripts, the older they are, the better they are because they're closer to the original writing, they didn't include these verses, so we're just making a note that these don't exist. Now, in 1611, when the King James Bible was translated, we didn't have access to these, tran these manuscripts. In fact, most of the best manuscripts have been discovered since the 1600s. And so modern translations, having access to all these manuscripts, are making subtle tweaks and adjustments and recognizing the best manuscripts don't include these, but because the, a multitude of manuscripts include these, and by the way, this was in the King James, we're not going to just get rid of it because then people are going to panic. We're just going to make an editorial note so they know what's going on. That being said, though, friends, and if you read Mark 16, 9 through 20, there isn't anything there or in John 7 to 8 that changes, adds, contradicts, subtracts anything we know about what the Bible teaches. Our doctrine, our theology, our belief systems remain completely intact, even being brutally honest with the changes in the actual manuscripts. Let me end on this final note. Realizing that God's Word is expressed in human, human words should not surprise us. In fact, friends, this is God's MO. This is modus operandi. God does this all the time. After all, when God chose to walk amongst us, He didn't do so in an unapproachable blazing light of fire, did He? He walked around like a carpenter's son with sweat on his brow. When God decided to make the focus of His redemptive work in the world, He didn't populate it with some angelic, perfect beings. He created local churches full of imperfect, flawed people. When God is working out His salvation in our lives, He doesn't give us this like Holy Spirit overhaul, instantaneous change, but works through trials and suffering in our daily following of Jesus Christ in our lives. In other words, friends, God does His most supernatural work in ways that seem very natural. He accomplishes His divine providences in daily practices. He does the extraordinary miracles in very mundane ways, and He does significant things in insignificant ways. And we have to hold to the tension of those two. In fact, we must hold to the wonder of those two because if we lean too far on one way or the other, we create not only a very different Christian faith, but a very different and imbalanced gospel. And keeping that balance, friends, helps us infuse every single insignificant, mundane, daily action with significance and an amazing view of what God is doing. And at the same time, not putting all the responsibility on us or releasing us from any, all the, any responsibility, but keeps us right where we need to be. Much like our discipleship, there is action that is required, but the success of the mission is dependent upon God. And in His grace, in His grace, He allows us to participate in everything He's doing, from the writing of His Word to the advancement of the kingdom. Like a loving Father, He lets us tag along and be amazed at His work and His Word. Let's pray. Father, we come before You, and just we thank You for the richness of Scripture, that it punches through even kind of the, maybe the religious overtones we would bring to the text and makes us, gets us back to the brass tacks of about how we live our lives. Father, and how, and the way in seeing that as we reflect on Your Word, it's just like the way You brought Your Word to pass. It's a combination of this supreme sovereignty working in, in a mysterious way, allowing us fallen creatures who call on your name to participate. 
Father, we pray that we would never lose the wonder and, 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 and mystery of that, that we would not just abandon our intellect to just being mystical or, 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 or think that it's all about being rational and abandon our, our zeal and our faith, but that we would combine both, Lord. We thank you and help ask that you'd help us to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.